0: You are listening to The Life She Wrote, where we talk about faith deconstruction, religious trauma, and all things ex-evangelical. Episode ever of the life she wrote the podcast. My name is Emily, or just M, if you know me from Twitter or TikTok, and I am your host. I'm the creator of thelifeshewrote.com, which is a blog dedicated to all things faith deconstruction, religious trauma, and other ex-evangelical related topics. Thank you for joining me on this new journey. I am brand new to podcasting. I spent the better part of my life hating the sound of my own voice on any recording ever, so I guess you could say this is a growth experience. There's only so much you can squeeze into a blog post once a week before you're boring readers to tears, so a podcast felt like a natural extension to continue exploring and discussing the topics that need a little more nuance, a little more detail than can be offered in 1500 words or less. Today, I'm going to offer up a little bit about me and how and why I ended up living in XV land this long. And then we'll dive into Thursday's blog post, uh, which is an overview of purity culture. I'll try to set up a working definition of the term and create some context for the rest of the series. It ended up being about five parts in total. The first part went up on the blog last week. Part two will go live on the blog on Thursday, May 20th. And part two is devoted to the teaching of modesty and its natural progression, which is rape culture. So there is your content warning for next week's episode here on the podcast. Okay, now that the longest intro in the history of podcast is done with, let's keep moving. You know that feeling when you see somebody else doing something that impacts your life in a meaningful way and you love the way it makes you feel and you think, I want to do that thing, so I can make other people feel this good, too. That's kind of how I feel about podcasts. It feels like getting to sit in on someone else's conversation. Not in a creepy way, but in a way that allows me to learn things I would never have been able to learn otherwise. Like a lot of things in life, I was late to the party. (laughs) At first, I did not understand the appeal, and I was too afraid to try. Too afraid was actually my mantra for the majority of my life. Too afraid to upset someone. Too afraid of disappointing people. Too afraid to fail. Too afraid of not doing all the the things the best way every time. Too afraid that my truest self would be too much for the people who said they loved me. Too afraid of not making the right choice as if the right choice was this monolith that I had to fit my life into. If I didn't, bad things would happen. I would have to live with the consequences of my bad choices. And that, in my mind, was worst-case scenario. So what happened? How is it that I'm sitting here today in my closet talking to all of you? I'm not going to make it sound simple, because it wasn't. It's taken time and distance apart from the white evangelicalism I was born into. It's taken lots of unlearning. I've had to listen a lot. I still prefer listening to talking, contrary to popular belief and the length of this episode. It took having the means and the privilege to find that unicorn therapist, you know, the one, the one who's trauma-informed, but also understands the psychological impacts of evangelical Christianity. I got lucky. And that's how I'm sitting here talking to you. Because one day my unicorn therapist said to me, You spend a lot of energy hiding. What are you so afraid of? Well, I said, I guess I'm afraid that if the people who are supposed to love me knew the real me, they wouldn't love me anymore. The look on her face was one of deep sadness, but also knowing she had just let me unlock my own cage. And that's the decide, The day I decided to stop being afraid. I stopped asking, what will they think of me? And instead asked, what will happen to me if I keep hiding? The answer to that last question was more terrifying than any potential answer I could think of for the first question. So what does all this have to do with purity culture? Purity culture had a huge impact on my choices as a teen and a young adult. You know all those fears about making the wrong choice. (laughs) At the time, purity culture dictated all of my major life decisions, my relationships, my college choices, my whole future. That doctrine was embedded into the fabric of my whole life, just like all the other Christian doctrine I had been taught since childhood. In fact, we didn't really call it purity culture at the time. It was just my life as a Christian teenager in 1990s America. When I decided to start this series... I felt like it was the right time. I had been avoiding the whole overarching concept of purity culture in therapy for a solid year, but something inside me just stopped being afraid. It was time. There's always been a lot of chatter in XV spaces about purity culture. It Its effects are far-reaching. But lately, there have been some white evangelical pastors trying to rebrand it, trying to say they understand the harm that purity culture caused, and then explaining what a biblical sexual ethic should look like. Dear listener, the biblical sexual ethic they keep explaining is still purity culture. I'm not sure who they're trying to fool. We already lived it. I wrote about this last month when well-known pastor and author Tim Keller spent weeks tweeting about why his theology was superior to any ideology outside of mainstream Christianity. It all began with a tweet about sex outside of a heterosexual marriage relationship being dehumanizing, which is ironic because his statement was denying the reality of millions of lived experiences and what is denying someone's own perceived reality over and over if not dehumanizing. To be honest, this is right on cue. This is their MO. It's not bad enough to call us liars, divisive, bitter. No, they're going to reach into their bag of spiritual abuse tricks and pull out all the stops. They think if they throw us a bone by somehow saying some parts of purity culture were damaging, that will somehow help their credibility with the people who have their one foot out the door. But it doesn't work that way. A few weeks ago, Blake Chestine, the host of the ex-evangelical podcast, said on Twitter, and this is not a direct quote because I didn't save it. Sorry, Blake. But it went something like, evangelicals would rather talk about us than to us. And he was exactly right. They don't want to actually hear what we have to say about purity culture and all the other doctrine that traumatized us. Because if they did, they'd have to be held accountable for their words and actions. And as you and I probably both know— They don't really believe they need to be held accountable by other humans, because at the end of the day, they believe they're only accountable to their God, which allows them to live in this fantasy world they've created where the world shall pass away and therefore nothing in this world or of this world matters. Meaning humans, the human beings living, breathing here and now, don't have to matter, especially if the mattering is inconvenient for them. For white evangelicals, people who leave their spaces and then speak truth to power are a huge inconvenience. This is why for as long as they refuse to acknowledge our stories, I will keep telling them. I will continue to amplify other people's stories as well. And as long as they keep trying to gaslight us by saying purity culture didn't really hurt people that bad, we must keep telling them that it did. And it does. I say we... But I don't believe it's every ex-evangelical's job to keep telling their story. There are plenty of people who are much happier and healthier, putting the past behind them and never looking back. Living happy, fulfilled lives. It is totally possible. And I could probably do that. But I've found belonging in this space, and this is the place where I'm choosing to use my talents and my energy, and I will continue to do so until my body tells me otherwise. So that is why I am here now, still talking about purity culture. Now, when ex-evangelicals or ex-Mormons or even ex-Catholics talk about purity culture, we're talking about a specific set of teachings revolving around sex and sexuality that focus on abstinence and modesty, with a heavy emphasis on shame and fear. Now, as a lot of you know, it's more pervasive than that, but like I said before, this is just kind of a working definition. And we're also talking about a specific time in history here in the U.S. and also in Canada and the U.K. And I kind of want to paint you a picture of what white evangelical subculture was like here in the early 90s uh, in the U.S., mostly because that's where I live. And by the way, if you have a story from your experience um, in Canada or the U.K., I'd I'd love to hear it. Uh, You can send me an email at wrote at gmail, um, or you can find all my links in the episode notes. In order to understand what it was like, we have to go back in time and talk about the culture wars. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, white evangelical pastors and thought leaders were waging war on all things secular. Uh, This is when we saw the formation of uh, Dr. James Dobson's focus on the family. Uh, If it was not Christian in nature, Christians should not be consuming it. So music, books, television, movies, if it was secular, it was going to corrupt your mind so much that it would separate you from God or even worse, prevent you from spending eternity with Jesus. Keep in mind, we're also coming off the heels of the satanic panic of the early 80s. <laughs> it's kind of a wild time for evangelicalism, folks. <laughs> um, parents were on high alert for any media that referenced witchcraft, sorceries, supernatural themes. They saw all that as a doorway for Satan to enter their homes and their children's minds. In the charismatic circles that I grew up in, spiritual warfare was a very real thing. Stories of demons and angels battling it out over souls of humans was absolute truth. Garbage in, garbage out was a phrase familiar to me as well. Anything secular could give the devil a foothold. This is what they were teaching people. But the Christians abstaining from secular things weren't sitting at home Knitting in silence every night. <laughs> that void was being filled with new Christian only consumer content, and that was big business. Christian bookstores were popping up all over the country. We see the birth of CCM or contemporary Christian music, and Christian radio stations are taking to the airwaves. And don't forget, in 1992 in the US, we have a presidential election, and now a Democrat in the White House for the first time in 16 years. Talk about panic for conservative Christian Republicans. It's no surprise that this is when we see these abstinent org, these abstinent only organizations popping up, producing materials marketed to youth pastors and college chaplains touting the importance and benefit of abstinence and sexual purity. We also see, and this is kind of a little bit of a rabbit hole, I guess I should have warned you, I like rabbit holes, but we also see these crisis pregnancy centers pop up everywhere, which pretend to be clinics offering help to unwed or underage pregnant women, but are really just pro-life propaganda centers scaring women with unwanted pregnancies into keeping their babies instead of seeking abortive health care. These centers are still everywhere and still deceiving communities about their forced birth agendas while receiving millions in government subsidies. Don't take my word for it. Here's just one excerpt from an article just last year on Vox. Quote, in recent years, states and federal government have been increasingly positioning the centers as social safety net centers, shifting money toward them and away from other facilities that provide a wider range of services like family planning clinics. The Trump administration, for example, last year, that would have been 2019, barred groups that provide or refer abortions from getting federal family planning funds but awarded a grant to a network of pregnancy resource centers in California. These places are everywhere. You can go online and Google it and uh, you will find tons of content, um, articles and tweets and uh, all kinds of things. People talking about uh, just how deceiving these places are. And I will link that article, by the way, in the episode notes so you can read it for yourself. But I wanted you to see the trajectory that purity culture ideology has taken. When I say the effects are far-reaching, this is what I mean. These centers are literally evangelicals' answers to women who don't remain abstinent. Speaking of abstinence, I want to talk about that for a moment. Because a lot of people, particularly the boomer generation and older, they often see abstinence as benign in nature. And a lot of them who are conservative Christians have donated to the kind of forced birth organizations I just talked about. But the concept of abstinence within purity culture and evangelical Christianity is so much more than that. It's not just fear of teen pregnancy or STDs. No, they're literally teaching teenagers flat-out lies about their bodies. Things like every time you have sex with someone, you lose a part of yourself you can never get back. Or that when you kiss someone, there's a chemical reaction that happens in your brain and you no longer have control over the rest of your body. And I won't go into the grotesque details of the lies that those crisis pregnancy centers tell women about fetuses and babies. These things are taught as absolute truth. It's the real science that the world, yes, I'm using air quotes right now, doesn't want you to know. And this is why we have a generation of now adults who are struggling to know their bodies, to trust their bodies. Purity culture taught us that if we just followed all the rules, we'd have this godly marriage. That even if it was hard, it would be the most fulfilling thing we would ever experience in our lives. Teenage girls were making lists in notebooks and journals of all the qualities they wanted in a godly husband. But these lists weren't our own ideas. These ideas were put in our head by this doctrine. Now, I'm not saying we weren't allowed to think for ourselves completely, but we were heavily influenced at such an impressionable age by this all-encompassing subculture that we lived in. It wasn't just one night a week with a sermon and some worship songs. It was in the music we listened to, the books we were encouraged to read, and uh, you know, magazines. And... For those kids that had to go to Christian schools or were homeschooled with Christian curriculum, it was built into their curriculum. I mentioned this in the blog going down memory lane and listening to some lyrics of some songs from that era, and I'm going to pick on DC Talk for a minute. My apologies to Kevin Max, who's proven to be an incredible human. Sidebar, it's a strange form of relief to see where he's ended up and to uh, have the privilege of interacting with him on Twitter and I still don't really have words for that, but uh, I'm grateful. I can't speak about the other two guys, Toby Mack, Michael Tate. I don't I don't keep up with artists who've stayed in that CCM world because, quite frankly, <laughs> I never really want to think about CCM ever again in my life. Um, and so all of this is for research purposes only. Uh, but I want to point out that until groups like like DC Talk came along, Christian music was very uncool. You know to us as kids it was like the music our parents listened to so we you know christian music was just like we had to listen to it by default because remember we never owned our own madonna cassette tape or any other popular artists of the 80s and 90s because it was all deemed highly inappropriate remember the culture wars we talked about earlier yeah that part so when these three dudes started rapping about jesus <laughs> I'm sorry, that kind of still makes me laugh. In the context of things young Christians would relate to at the time, it was a significant turning point in Christian consumerism. And this was just the beginning. With them came countless Christian artists making, marketing their music to teens and young adults. And uh, these themes from purity culture were woven into a lot of the songs. There's a song by DC Talk and... Um, I actually did kind of riff off the song for the title of my blog post um, this week, but uh, called That Kind of Girl. And to be honest, I hadn't thought about that song in ages until a few weeks ago when I was talking about it with a friend on Twitter. And so I had to look up the lyrics because I was so taken aback by what I was hearing, uh, especially thinking about how young I was when this was in my cassette player. That's right. I'm an elder millennial, not geriatric as someone else called us this week. I don't know what that's all about, but whatever. Uh, so I want to read some of the lyrics for this and no, I'm not going to rap. Oh my God. And yes, I'm sparing you from playing you the audio and making you listen to the song. Uh, so let me just read this to you, uh, as best I can, if I can get through without laughing. The other night I met a girl and she looked to be so nice I asked her for her digits, and she didn't think twice. A couple of days later, I called her up and asked her out. She said, with you, I said with me, and then she said without a doubt. I took her to the garden where I guess they grow the olives. (laughs) You guys, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to keep a straight face while I'm reading this. She wore a tighter skirt than any I had seen in college. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. She said I love to smoke and drink while cursing like a sailor. I asked her where she got a ma- her mouth and if she had a tailor. Finally, I walked her to her door to say goodnight. She said, I'm an apple. Would you care to take a bite? Politely, I refused and said, I'm looking for a lady. So she slapped me in the face and said, boy, you must be crazy. That was just the first verse, you guys. I don't even <laughs> I don't even know where to begin the garden of all things just really threw me off um but the thing that really stands out to me uh or stood out to me was like the overt reference to like eve in the garden um (laughs) and it's actually kind of really shitty like (laughs) i i'm really appalled at these lyrics and again oh my god this is embarrassing, but Kevin Max, if you ever listen to this episode, please just don't be mad at me. But I don't I don't know who wrote the lyrics to this. But I she said, I am an apple. Would you care to take a bite? Like, are they actually trying to imply that this woman was the embodiment of like Eve fallen in the garden? Like, is she the embodiment of of sin, of original sin. I don't, maybe I'm reading too far into this. I don't know, but it's, it's just bad. I, okay. So after the chorus, yeah, I'm not done yet. I'm sorry. Everyone And I say after the chorus, and now if the chorus is already in your head, because you know this song, I'm really sorry. That's just, it is what it is. Uh, The second verse goes on to say this, well, I'm looking for a girl who's virtuous, because God laid it on my heart to search for this. So I open up the word to the book of Proverbs. The 31st chapter tells me all about her. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. A woman who fears the Lord, she ain't playing. I can't, you guys. Hear what I'm saying, because I'm saying it clearly. She's that kind of girl I got to have near me. She's that kind of girl, different from the ones before, because I know she loves the Lord. She's that kind of girl, virtuous in every way. The girl that makes you say, I don't even know what comes next. (sighs) A little bit later on, it says, but the kind of girl you meet behind the doors of a church, you see, God will bring her to me so I don't have to search and i'm gonna stop because the next couple lines are so ridiculous i won't ever get through them and in case you're wondering yes that was really difficult to uh read and obviously i did not keep a straight face but the thing i want to point out here is that when this album when this album dropped there's some like hip millennial lingo for you uh the album was free at last it came out in 1992 that cassette tape was in my boombox for like all of seventh and eighth grade. So for me, that was ages twelve to thirteen. This was the music that I was listening to. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to listen to Madonna or Paul Abdul or uh, I, I don't even know who else was popular then. Um, but this is what I was listening to. I had very little understanding of attraction or romance, but I already knew then, just from this one song, that tight skirts, cuss words, flirting, and asserting myself were all things boys would reject me for. And I just... I don't know, y'all. That's kind of awful. I... I... I thought this one this last line of the song that I read... Was really interesting to me. The part where it says, You see, God will bring her to me so I don't have to search. And I think it's interesting, you know. I mean, the song was, and I, I'm assuming it was written from a guy's perspective, it was guys, sing, men singing it. But I think that's very interesting because it's also the same narrative for a lot of girls who grew up in that time. There was this concept that you were waiting for like the one, you know, you didn't need to search because God would just plop this perfect. Person, right in your lap. You wouldn't even have to, uh, you know, online dating. There, there was no such thing back then. Well, if it was, it was in in its infancy. Um, and that was just one song, um, the first one that popped into my head. There's another song by Rebecca St. James that I know a lot of people cite as well, called "Wait for Me." Uh, and when I looked up the lyrics to this one, I was I was fascinated because it's it really sums up how girls thought about this future. Uh, their future during this time period, and the lyrics to this one say, "And I just pulled a verse from it. I think, darling, did you know that I dream about you, waiting for the look in your eyes when we meet for the first time? Darling, did you know that I pray about you, praying that you will hold on, keeping keep your loving eyes only for me." Whew. and then a little later on, after a lot of wait for me, wait for me, wait for me, now I know. You may have made mistakes, but there's forgiveness and a second chance. So wait for me, darling. Wait for me. (laughs) I mean, even in this song that is painting this idealistic picture, if you will, of this fictitious relationship that you're going to have with this fictitious perfect person that that God has chosen for you out of the billions of people on this planet, even in this song, at the end, she even acknowledges, now you may have made mistakes, but there's forgiveness and second chances. (laughs) Even this song acknowledges the unrealistic expectations that were placed on teenage girls and boys and young college students in this era through this ideology through this doctrine it's just it's fascinating to me i in the blog post i quoted another ex-evangelical who told her story from mother jones in 2018 she says the stakes are high in purity culture every slip up is a strike against any hope of a successful marriage my body was not my own not really it belonged to god and to some featureless specter of a future husband. And I can't even tell you how perfectly that sums up how we felt as girls anyway. Of course, this is my only one, this is my only experience was as a cis-presenting white female during that time. But that was truly the mentality, you know. and. It's really hard when you're a teenager to grasp this huge concept, this idea that God has picked out this one person for you. It, there was also a lot of talk about, and I know this wasn't purity culture specific, but I do remember also um, a lot of the things you were praying for and talking about at the time were all like seeking God's perfect will for your life. As if there was this one plan for your life one uh path i guess you could say that you're supposed to take and on that path is with the thing the path where everything is going to work out perfectly the doors are going to be opened in that direction but you just have to choose the right direction and i think i just might have stolen something from the mormons right there for a second choose the right um but I do remember being consumed with these thoughts of being so afraid of choosing the wrong path. And I do remember I had a a youth pastor my junior or senior year of high school. Uh, he's still a good family friend and uh, he's, he's a really good guy. But I remember him telling me or a group of us at, at some point when I was probably around 16 or 17 years old that, he kind of helped us by at least admitting that there could be more than one correct path that we didn't have to worry so much about the one red dot in the middle of the big white wall. There could be lots of red dots that all represent paths that God would approve of bless if you will. And as long as we just chose one of those, and I'm sure that he meant for that to be comforting. And at the time it was, but looking back, um, that's still, uh, still very ominous. (laughs) And there's still a lot of fear there. You know, it was this constant fear of making the right decisions, not messing up our future, not messing up our future marriage. Uh, Wow. Okay. There's just a lot of memories. And I'm sure if you've lived through this and you're listening, you're probably thinking the same thing. In this When I was preparing for this series, I was curious about how other ex-evangelicals had learned about sex, and not just abstinence, but where they got the actual helpful information about their bodies and reproduction and sexuality. So I put up a poll, a very unofficial Twitter poll, and I got about about 700 people responded, and 73% said they had to figure it out completely on their own. And they took to their replies to clarify their answers. They would ask their friends or older siblings. They found books at the library they could read. They read magazines. Basically any way they could get their hands on useful information about sex. They had to figure it out on their own. Even the ones that went to uh, public school or private school that taught abstinence-only education, because it was abstinence-only, they weren't getting actual helpful information about their bodies and sex and reproduction and just human anatomy. (laughs) Um, And this is probably not shocking, but the place where they learned the most harmful information about sex, you guessed it, was church. As we work our way through this series, I'll be sharing stories submitted by readers who've also lived through this unique time in our lives. Because I'm only one person who, as I mentioned before, lived it as a white, cis-presenting female. And I can only tell you about my own personal memories and experiences, which might be similar to other people's experiences. Right? That's the whole point, is letting everyone know that we're not alone. But it's not going to cover the huge spectrum of experiences over a couple of decades. I want to read a passage from an email I got from a reader this week. And I'll probably read her whole story when we uh, get to episode or the episode on part four of the blog series, which is going to be on shame and sexuality, and we're going dive, to dive into relationships more um, that were affected by purity culture. But this excerpt is so indicative of how girls were made to feel in these environments. Um, so a little backstory, this particular reader, she was homeschooled but did not attend church regularly until she said fifth or sixth grade. But yet by the summer of when she turned 13 and started going to youth group, she had already learned enough to know the following. Quote. A year before, I had no friends outside of my own family. I was launched into this new, terrifying, and exciting atmosphere of peers. The only problem was I soon found out I was like a landmine all the boys had to watch out for. I learned that I was subject to men in all areas of my life. I could not teach, speak up for or against, be friends with, or hold accountable the men in my life. I learned my body was a threat to all men, and somehow also a glorious gift I could someday present to one man whom my father approved of. End quote. The juxtaposition of that last sentence, how she already had to balance these mixed messages at such a young age, that her body was problematic, but still somehow a commodity, is alarming. (laughs) Like I mentioned in my blog post this last week, this isn't a problem unique to parody culture, but also a problem for female bodies in society as a whole. And that is where I'm going to leave us this week, because next week we are going to dive headfirst into modesty and all of the harm that that entails. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we can't talk about modesty without talking about rape culture. So just a reminder, if you feel like that might be too triggering to listen to, please don't. Your mental health is always more important than how many downloads or reviews this podcast gets. And please don't ever forget that. I really want to thank you all for listening this far. (laughs) When I say thank you for listening, for some reason the movie Clueless pops into my head and I think of Travis saying, thanks for taking a chance on an unknown kid. I have a million ideas floating around in my head for this venture. I have a list of dream guests a mile long and zero expectations. So things can only go up from here, right? (laughs) In all seriousness, I am grateful to all of you who encouraged me to try this. I don't know that I would have otherwise. Uh, A little bit of housekeeping. I'm going to attempt to keep posting episodes weekly, and it looks like Tuesdays will be the day you can listen to new episodes, so keep an eye out for that. And that is all for this week. This has been episode one of The Life She Wrote, the podcast. Until next time. This has been an episode of The Life She Wrote, the podcast. You can read the blog post that inspired today's episode at thelifeshewrote.com, and get that link and all of our social links in the episode notes. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a good review. Thanks for listening.